If you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open up to two passages, uh, one primarily Colossians 3, verses 18 through 20, and then if you want to put your thumb on Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 28, uh, we're going to be going back and forth between the two of these. Um, and just as a preface, as you guys are finding your, your way and uh, in, in finding your place, uh, I have never dreaded uh, preaching a text more than this text today. Uh, in every which way, I have probably uh, gone back and forth 10 different times through the course of this week, uh, going, there's got to be something else that the Lord want me to say. Uh, even this morning at about 4 a.m., I was like, are you sure, Lord? Like, is this, is this really where we're going? Uh, and if that makes no sense to you, if you just read the first uh, four words, uh, you would see why. Wives, submit to your husbands, uh, right? Uh, it's a passage that every preacher longs to preach. Uh, it's a passage that uh, sells in all of the, the up-and-coming contemporary churches, and uh, it's the one that you want to uh, do use to draw a crowd, uh, nonetheless. And um, uh, I told my wife this week as we were talking through this, and uh, she said, what are you preaching on? I said, well, uh, we're going to do Colossians 3.18, the wives submit passage. Uh, and I just said, darling, um, I need you to have the car uh, started and ready when I get done. And uh, we're going to bolt out of here. And then her response to me was, well, if you do a bad job of this, I'm leaving you in the pulpit and uh, you can find your own way home. Uh, and uh, good luck to you. And so... Uh, so let's read this and then uh, let's talk about it a little bit uh, and walk through it. So this is the word of the Lord for us. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents and everything for this pleases the Lord. Let's pray. Father, uh, help us. Show mercy to us. Uh, help us understand rightly uh, what this means as a people of your word. Help us be faithful always in Christ's name. Amen. Um, over the past year, I have uh, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is I get the joy of doing premarital counseling with those that are about to enter into marriage. One of the questions that I get over and over again, or at least in these past three particular times, are from couples that are walking with the Lord. And they inevitably ask the question, well, what does Paul mean in Ephesians 5? And what does he mean in Colossians 3? Like, what's my role as the wife in particular? And what does submission actually mean? And more often than not, we bring into this uh, retroactively, this 1950s, if you will, understanding of what submission means in the marriage and uh, what it is that the wife is supposed to do. And I think so oftentimes I hear preachers, I hear teachers, uh, I hear uh, pastors, elders, they just completely miss and they emphasize the wrong things that I think exist in this. And so if you've been with us for a long period of time, you know that uh, one of my joys is to look at the forest and not the tree, but today what we're going to do is we're just going to hone in on the tree. And we're going to look at this word submission because I think it is a key word that we should understand rightly. For those of you that are married, that perhaps have misapplied this term, and for those of you that want to be married someday and want to know what it is that God, God's word teaches. And so a simple definition, if you will, just walking in, wives submit to your husbands in verse 18 that I'll offer is really two definitions. In its simplest form, the word submission means submission is the joyful invitation to lead. Submission is the joyful invitation to lead. And so when we come to the marriage altar, 
And when we see God's word in Colossians 3, when we see God's word in Ephesians 5, it is this joyful, voluntarily thing that we do when we unite with someone in holy matrimony, and it's this invitation just simply saying in its simplest form, just leave me. More specifically, biblical submission, more detailed, is the joy And it's the strength that you find, the spouse finds, the wife finds in particular, in placing your trust in another's leadership who lives obediently under the authority of God. It's the joy, it's the strength that comes when you know that your husband in particular is walking faithfully with God and pursuing God, that it makes it so much easier to walk in a pattern and in a rhythm of submission, to joyfully engage into that leadership and into that headship. Paul talks about this in Ephesians 5 as well. And I think Ephesians 5 helps us understand Colossians 3. And so I want to read Ephesians 5 in verse 22 where he says this, Similarly, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to their husbands. Well, what in the world could that mean? And couldn't we, in our worst and darkest moments, apply a a text of Scripture in that way and completely miss the the application, biblically speaking, that you would submit to your husband in every way, what on earth does that actually mean? And it's a question that theologians have wrestled with and pastors have wrestled with, and anyone who has walked through Scripture, you go, in everything? Does that mean, uh, as of recently, several months ago, I was engaged in premarital counseling, and, and the, uh, the, the, the future wife says this, does that mean that I have to, if my husband needs to pick out my outfit, I have to wear what he says I, I need to wear? Do I have to paint my nails the, the same color that my, that my husband wants me to, to paint them? Do I have to cut my hair in the way that my husband prefers for me to cut it? If I'm going to submit in him in every way, isn't that the logical implication to this text? And I just want to tell you definitively, that's nonsense. No. Anyone who would tell you otherwise is going beyond the bounds of what Scripture actually teaches. And so one of the ways that I think it's helpful for us to understand what Paul means when he says submission, I want to talk about briefly what submission is not. And I want to relieve some fears that that maybe some of you perhaps might have or correct some notions that exist maybe within the context of your marriage. First and foremost, submission does not mean that you agree on everything in your marriage. You are entitled as a wife, you are entitled as a husband to have differing opinions on certain things. It is absolutely okay in the eyes of the Lord to disagree and to see things differently. Because if we were married for any length of period of time, we recognize the reality that we are going to disagree as husband and wife. And it doesn't mean that one person is right before the Lord and one person is wrong before the Lord. It doesn't mean agreeing on everything. Number two, what submission does not mean is it is not about the dominance of the man. 
So when Paul talks about the husband being the head of the wife, this is not about you husbands. This is not about you future husbands exerting your dominance over a female, in particular your wife. It doesn't mean that that you rule over her. It doesn't mean that you're Lord over her because I've got news to you. For some of you, you might need to be reminded gently that that you are not her Lord. She has a Lord and his name is Jesus and he died for the sins of the world. You are not her Lord. This is not about you exerting dominance over your wife. Number three, submission is not about the demands of the husband. It's not about you telling her if she submits or not what you want her to do in any given particular situation. That's not what Paul is referring to. And there are men over the years, over the past 18 years of being in ministry that I've counseled that have been married for two or three years, that have been married for 30 and 40 years, that understand this notion of wives submitting to their husband. It means that you submit to my demands, whatever they may be, emotionally or spiritually or even physically. This is absolute nonsense. It's incredibly insane to assert such and make such a claim. It belittles the wife. It belittles the woman, and it makes her a lesser than in that moment, as if she is not made in the imago Dei, in the image of God. Number four, it is not living and acting in fear or unconditional obedience. It doesn't mean that you get to threaten your spouse or your girlfriend in, in whatever which way. It doesn't mean that you lead them in a, in a place or in a position or a posture down the road where they, they fear you in some way. I'll show her uh, what it means to to submit that is completely unbiblical and unkind and completely ungenerous to the text that Paul lays before when he talks about what submission is. Number five, it does not mean the wife is spiritually inferior to the husband. It doesn't mean that she's spiritually inferior. We are both made, male and female, in the imago Dei, in the image of God. We are both made equals because of what Christ has done. And your spirituality as a male and being the head of the relationship, it doesn't mean that you are more spiritual or your spirituality outranks that of your spouse. Most of us, if we were honest, most of us men, would recognize the truth and the reality that we are are punning over our coverage we, we have, have sort of leveled up, if you will, when it comes to our spouses. We recognize that, that our spouses in so many different ways, at least this is true of me, is, is not the, the spiritual one that's inferior to me, but is the one that is superior to me in so many different ways, just by character and by conduct. The way that we watch our spouses walk with Jesus faithfully over and over and over again. And one of the contexts of a healthy marriage is that each of you come alongside, you see Jesus, and that person makes you want to be more like Jesus because of how they walk with him. And you see the characters and and the traits that that maybe you're lacking in, and, and you watch. And so submission and headship, it does not mean that the wife is spiritually inferior to the husband. And then sixthly, and I can't believe I have to say this, but I'll say it anyway, it does not mean that all women must submit to all men everywhere at all times. It does not mean that all women 
must submit to all men by virtue of them being a man at all times. What Paul is referring to here in this moment, he is talking particularly and specifically only about the marriage relationship. And there is a segment of of evangelicals that would argue in some sense that that women are to be submissive at at all times across all spectrums. And and so what that means is the implication of that is far and fast reaching. It means that a woman could not have any kind of authority over any man under any given reason. It means that a woman could not be a a chief executive officer or a COO, could not be the the head of of their teaching department, could not be a governor or a mayor, could not be the president or the vice president. They could not have any authority over a man regardless of the situation. And all I'm saying here in this moment is that is utter nonsense and does not exist in the Scripture. It is an application that is applied by a very narrow group of people, but that application actually exists in some circles. Nowhere do we see in the Word of God are all women to submit to all men everywhere. No, what he's talking about is the marriage. He's talking about the relationship between the husband and wife. And so this is what submission and headship are not. What is submission and headship, what they actually are? One of my favorite preachers to listen to from time to time is a guy by the name of Tony Evans, just down the road on the east side of Dallas. And Tony Evans was preaching and he was talking in one of his books, he was talking about the kingdom man and he was talking about spiritual headship and and authority and, and what does submission actually mean. And he provides what I think is the most theologically astute and accurate statement in understanding spiritual headship that I have ever read in 40 years of existence. Here's what Tony Evans says, spiritual headship is God telling the woman to duck so he can punch the man in the face instead. He's saying, the man, the woman better duck, because I'm going to get them both. And spiritual headship is saying, I will receive the blow that God is about to give because of my disobedience or because of my sin. Telling the man, to, to, the woman, to duck and to get out of the way so that the man can receive the punishment on behalf of the couple. But more so than that, submission and headship, it means in particular, or more specifically, it means the husband is the one that carries the burden of responsibility, but he doesn't carry all the responsibility. When we unite in in what we call holy matrimony, it means that, that both spouses, male and female, come alongside each other and both bear some kind of responsibility. But what headship means and what submission means is that the male, the husband, he carries the bulk of that responsibility. He's the one that that attempts to carry the weight, but it doesn't mean that the woman doesn't carry any responsibility or the wife doesn't carry any of that. They do it together, but the bulk of it rests on the husband. Number two, it means that submission is man and wife living as equals under the lordship of Christ, but fulfilling different roles. It means that we are equals under the imago Dei. In the image of God, we are equals before him because of what Christ has done. Yet in the midst of that, God has created unique roles and unique responsibilities for the husband, and he has created unique responsibilities for the wife. To lead, to provide, to protect. 
to nurture, to, to affirm, to love as, as Christ has, has loved the church and, and to serve the church. God has called us and equipped us to fulfill those different roles. As one author put it this way, what submission and headship actually are, it's like a dance where somebody is leading in the midst of the dance. Now, if you were to come to the to the Erickson household on any given night, a random night, you might find that uh, the Ericksons are trying to beat back the, the notion that Baptists cannot dance. And in our home, on a pretty regular basis, uh, for just quality family time, the music turns up. Uh, we go to Kids Bop. We listen to a little bit of Justin Bieber and some other things uh, to get my kids going. Uh, and, and we have fun and we dance. And, 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 and Haley and I do dance. As a Baptist minister, we, we do dance. And, uh, but when we dance, make no mistake about it, I don't let her lead. She allows me to lead, and I lead her. When I dance with my kids, I, I lead my kids. And, and so the act of, and the understanding of headship and understanding submission, it's like a dance where, where someone leads. Fifthly, I want to say this to you about submission and headship. It doesn't mean that one person has all the answers. It doesn't mean that one person has all the answers, but it does mean the husband should lead in initiating the important conversations. There have been so many times over 18 years of marriage with my wife where I had no idea what we as a couple, as a family, were supposed to do. And there have been so many times where, where I would go to Haley and go, I'm not sure what to do. What do you think we, we should do? It's understanding that I, I don't have all the answers. I don't need to be the smartest guy in the room at all times. And, and that there are people, in particular our spouses, in the context of this sermon and talking about marriages, that our spouses, as particularly our wife as the man, they have far better and wiser and more theologically astute answers than we do. And so understanding what submission and headship are doesn't mean that I have all the answers. It just simply means that, that I initiate the difficult conversations. And so here's how headship works out in the context of a marriage. It's, uh, how, it's initiating the hard things. It's, it's questions like this as the husband. Am I loving you in a way that, that you want to be loved? Have I served you th this past week in a way that... that you, you want to be served, not the way that I want to serve you, but the way that you want to receive that love and that affection. How, how can I, as your, as your husband, how can I assist you with, with five kids or two kids or, or a newborn? What is the best way or as an empty nester, how do I make sure this week, today, that you feel loved and affirmed, that you feel cherished as my, as my bride? It's initiating those conversations, being proactive. How can I be a better spiritual leader in our home? How can I lead my kids? And, and how can I lead you? Spiritual headship is about initiating those kinds of of conversations. And it's saying, what can I do better as your husband? What can I do better as your partner? Ultimately, all of this is rooted uh, from an orthodoxy standpoint and the idea that the Son, the Lord Jesus, is simultaneously equal to the Father, yet he is submissive to him. He is equal with the Father, yet, yet he submits. We, we see Jesus make these comments, not my will, but Father, your will be done, just like a marriage relationship should be. But if we go on in Ephesians 5, I want you to see, beginning in verse 25, how he elaborates this. It helps us understand Colossians 3. And in verse 25, he says this, husbands, 
you should love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, cleanse her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy, that she might be without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I want you to notice that in that moment, the the weight of the text seems to be carried on the husband being proactive, not on the wife being submissive. It's on the husband being proactive. Well, what is he being proactive about? Well, he's saying you loved your wife as Christ loved the church. In other words, he sanctified her or he made her better. Because he's following Jesus, he he makes her want to be more like Jesus. He leads her in such a way that that she looks more like him and that she longs for him. He leads her in ways of truth. He, He seeks to understand his wife, just as Christ understood the church. He understood the depravity and the sin that was there. He, he understood and he, and he saw the blemishes and he saw the imperfections, yet he, he looked to her anyway and, and he made her better. He, he sought to understand her. He sought to hear her. He, he sought to make sure that his wife felt heard and, and that she felt cherished and, and loved, that, that she was the object of his affection, that, that she was the, the one, not the thing, but, but the person that he, that he longed for. He sought to make sure that she felt like she, she was the most beautiful person in all of the world. He, he sought to, to make sure this righteous husband in this sense that, that she was absolutely his standard for beauty in every which way, that when he gazed upon her, that when he looked at her, that she was it for him. She was the apple of his eye. She was the thing that he admired the most. He cherished her. He treated her with the same deference that he, that he wished to be treated with, not some hyper form of, of masculinity where he lorded over her and he dominated her and he exhorted his own force, but, but rather that she was one to be cherished and loved deeply. In a gospel-centered marriage. The how is always more important than the who when it comes to decision making. The idea and the question of submission always comes up in the context of like who makes what decision. When do I yield? When does he decide? When, what am I supposed to do? And I would say to the husbands, every husband in this room, every father that's raising daughters, that if you would emphasize this one point, the how you go about making decisions is much more important than the who goes about making the decision. How you go about making sure your spouse feels heard and feel led. It's a question that, that you leave here from today and you grab your spouse and, and you go, any major decisions we've made in our life, have I, have I gone about that in the correct way that you feel a part of that decision and feel heard in that decision, that we are walking forward together in the, in the, the same pace of play, that, that you feel heard in the midst of that. And I promise you, husbands, that if she feels heard and she feels understood, that you have rightly understood her position in all things, that even if you decide to do something contrary to that, she will follow you and she will allow you the privilege and the honor of of leading in that sense. The how is more important than the who. But I want to draw your attention back to Colossians 3. And I want you to see two things, one thing in particular that I've never noticed before. 
When I was preparing this week, I thought I was going to preach a, a sermon on submission, and then I was going to yell at all the kids in here and say, obey your parents. Like, obey them. Just stop it. Like, there's nothing else to it. Just do whatever they say as long as it's right before. That was, the two points of my sermon were this. But I never noticed that in the context of this, if you put verse 18 and verse 20 side by side, I want you to notice two, or one thing in particular, two different words. In verse 18, that apply to the marriage, it says, wives submit to your husbands as is fitting to the Lord. And then it says, children, obey your parents and everything. So he uses two different words, submit for the wife and obey before the parents. Now there's a reason why he does that. And he talks about the home in this context. And he, he sort of puts up against obe obedience versus submission. So children are called to obey their parents. Like you do what your, your mom and dad say. Like if they say do this, do this. If they say don't do that, you do it. But in the context of the, of the marriage, the wife is called not to obey her husband, but to submit to her husband. Those are distinct words for a distinct reason. And the implications are vast and far reaching. Number one is because a husband does not have the authority scripturally or in any way to punish his wife as you would punish a child for choosing not to submit to his leadership. You don't get permission in the scripture to do that. You don't be, you're not punitive towards your wife. Well, she's not submitting, so I'm going to cut off finances to her. She's not submitting, so I'm going to limit social interactions. And you say, well, who is doing that? Well, I promise you in 18 years of ministry, I have seen couples that do that and use language of submission and headship to apply that inappropriately and wrongly to, to have a freedom that they think exists within the context of the text. And it does not exist there. You have no right, no biblical grounds, you're not right before the Lord, if you begin to treat your spouse punitively because they don't do something that you want them to do, you are far beyond the bounds of any conversation about submission and headship. And I would dare say you have entered into the bounds of misapplying scripture and you're walking in a sinful way towards your spouse. You're not her Lord. You're not there to exert dominance over her. You're there to love. You're there to, you're there to cherish. You're there to build her up. She's there to build you up, to, to affirm and to bring you along. And it's not there to, to misapply Scripture in this sense of what submission actually is. If you go back to the how, is more important than the who when it comes to making the decisions. How you go about processing conflict and decisions with your spouse, it's everything. I'm talking about it in a way that, that honors the Lord and is faithful to his word in all things. And so I want to end with a couple of just very practical things for husbands, practical things for, for wives. If you're not a husband, you're not a wife, these are things that you should strive for. If you're dating at TCU or Southwestern, these are things that you should be looking for in the context of a relationship to know whether or not you're going to partner up with that person for the rest of your life. If you're, if you're looking and, and longing for the husband in particular, I'll say these five things first. Number one, you should know your wife well. You should have conversations about her emotional needs and, and her spiritual needs. You should, you should know her physical needs. You should regularly have conversations to where, to where you know them. 
One of the things that I teach in premarital counseling with couples when they come, the, the very first session after the introductory part and all the, you know, what are you wanting to get out of this, is we, we teach a theme that's in the Old Testament about oneness in marriage. The goal is oneness in marriage. You leave and cleave your mom and dad, and you cleave to your spouse. You become one. And the way that you become one is there, there is emotional intimacy that you pursue in knowing your spouse's emotional needs. There is spiritual intimacy that you pursue. You lead and, and you long for those things and you lead them in, in a way that is right before the Lord. And then there's physical intimacy that exists. There are love languages and physical touch and all of those things come along. And you have to have the emotional, you have to have the spiritual, and you have to have the physical to be one in the context of marriage. And so you pursue those things and you know your spouse, you know them well enough to be able to identify those things. You know your wife well, you express honor in what you say and do. You don't talk down to them. You don't come at them in a, in a self-righteous way. You don't come at them in a, uh, I'm superior than you and you're inferior to me. You express honor in what you say. You express honor in what you do. You pursue a healthy home balance. One of my dearest friends is a family practitioner uh, just in Burleson. He's a, he's a doctor. And many years ago when I was getting to know him and he was talking about his practice and how he applies medicine, he, he's one of those guys, if you've ever known family practitioners, just general practitioners or doctors in general, they're, they're extremely busy people. The list of patients before them is endless. And, and uh, here's the thing I learned about, about this guy is I got to know him and it, it helped me just fall in love with him. And he's my, my doctor that I go to and my, and my friend, he doesn't he didn't roll into his practice until about 9, 30, 10 o'clock. He leaves his practice about four o'clock. Now he's the boss, and so he can do that. But here's the, here's the reality. I, I said, you know, you, you have five, 6,000 patients in Ellis County, Tarrant County. I mean, you, you have patients all over the place. Yet you don't choose to be at work, though you could, at, at 7 a.m., and you don't choose to leave at 7 p.m. And, and you want to know why he, he doesn't go in at 7 a.m. and leave at 7 p.m.? He, he goes in about 9.30 or 10 so that he can drink coffee with his wife every morning. He leaves early at, at four so he can go home and, and be at his girl's volleyball game. And he can go with them. See, money, money's not his motivation, though he makes money and he, and he does well as far as this life is concerned and the things, but yet he has made choices and decisions in his life where he's saying, I'm going to honor my wife, I'm going to love my kids, I'm going to be present, and I'm not going to let any wedge be put in between us. I'm going to have a balance as far as I can help it, being my own businessman and, and setting those parameters, I'm going to have a balance between my professional life and my home life. I'm going to care for them. And I'm not going to be the dad that was never there. And so the husband understands that his role is to have a balance between home and his professional life. Dads, one of the things I'll, I'll tell you is this. Uh, when you go home, leave your work at work. If you don't know how to compartmentalize, figure it out. There's books on it on how to leave stuff alone. There's YouTube videos, there's TED Talks, I promise you. There's, there's Twitter quotes you can quote. Leave your work at home. And when you go home, the goal is not I can sit in my recliner and watch television. The goal is when I get home and I walk in those doors, I'm gonna be the very best husband that I can be to my wife. I'm gonna be the very best father I can to my kids. And I'm gonna engage and then you put them to bed early so that you can go do what you want later. Seven o'clock's a bedtime, eight o'clock's a bedtime. 
But you engage your spouse, you, you engage your family as far as you can help it. Fourthly, husbands, you establish an environment of trust. Here's a question for you to go home with, to ask your spouse, do, do I live and treat you in such a way that I am worthy of your trust? That you trust me uh, implicitly as, as your husband, explicitly as your husband. Do I, do I honor you and do I cherish you in such a way that I'm worthy of your trust? And fifthly, as already stated before, you initiate the important conversations as you exert your headship, if you will, over your spouse. For the wife, I would just say this. Believe the best about your husband's motivations in leading. Give him the benefit of the doubt. If he's trustworthy, if he's worthy of your trust, if he's earned that right to, to be trustworthy, believe the benefit of the doubt, believe the best about his motivation to affirm the process before you know the outcome when it comes to, to larger decisions, big decisions, moving, where to take a job, you affirm the process of conversation. I remember when Haley and I were, were seeking the Lord about three years ago about whether or not the Lord was calling us to Travis. We had multiple conversations over and over daily for weeks. And she would process, and I would process. And we'd weigh the, the good and, and the potential bad, and we'd, we'd weigh the cost of, of leaving and uprooting and, and the potential of what was before us over and over as we were navigating. And before long, the Lord had united our hearts. He had united our thoughts. He had united our emotions, that this was the right thing for us to do collectively as a couple. Affirm the process. Three, strive to make the decision succeed. Do everything you can to see whatever the, the outcome is, to, to see it and to make it work. Think of and think of, speak and think of the decision positively and then offer feedback. I think in closing, when you talk about wives submit, husbands lead, headship, submission, all the things that, that God puts for us. And I had one of our elders say to me this morning, he said, you know, years ago I taught through that passage and I had a, a couple that left the church over it. They were just mad. And, uh, and his comment to them in the back end that they left was like, I, I mean, like, I can't make the word say what it doesn't say. Like, this is what it says. And these are the, the implications of that. And this is what, what God wants that, that, it, that is best uh, for our marriages. And, and I recognize that some of you may be in relationships where, to be honest with you, your husband doesn't lead. He doesn't act like the head. I, 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 recognize, I, I deal with that on a, on a regular basis. But, but I'll just tell you this. There are times where if my wife candidly were to, were to pull aside, she would say, there's times where, where I don't lead right. There are times where I've, I've messed up or made mistakes or, or spoken harshly or too quickly. And yet, in the midst of that, what we're doing is we're not trying to follow one another. You're not here to follow your husband, whether he is doing things or not doing things. You, you have been called, first and foremost, to follow Jesus. He is your standard. When your spouse fails you, it's the reminder that he will never fail you. When your spouse lets you down, it's the reminder that he will never let you down. When your spouse is harsh with you, he will never be harsh with you. For those that are in Christ, there is no condemnation. He's always there, faithful and true, kind, full of compassion. You see, I think the Bible teaches explicitly that Christ 
did not come into the world to condemn the world. He didn't come in to speak a harsh word because the, the world was already condemned according to John 3. You keep reading after John 3.16 and he's like, he didn't come to condemn. Why? Because the world already stood in condemnation. So rather he came to redeem us and to reconcile us from our sins to the Father, to look at him. Whenever we as spouses in, in our marriage relationships, whenever we walk through difficult decisions, I think it's imperative that we do three things, and I'll close with this. We, we evaluate with our spouse the process, how we went about making this decision. We, we ask for feedback in our tone. So much of the arguments that exist within marital relationships exist and lies in the tone, in the way that you go about speaking about things, in the way you said it, in the timing in, in which you brought it up. And then we evaluate the decision itself. What was this really best? Did we, did we make a mistake? Do we need to see it through? Do we need to follow up and, and correct some things in the midst of that? But so much of the marital strife that I see as a pastor involves the tone. How you go about making it, not who goes about it makes it. Pray with me. Father, we pray that uh, we would first and foremost be in submission to you the joyful, glad, voluntary submission to your leadership in our life, your lordship over us. Would you help us do that, Father? Father, I pray that you would allow our marriages in this church to reflect the glories of your gospel. I pray for those who are not married today, that today would be like preventive medicine, that you would raise up a, a new generation that would have gospel-centered, gospel-focused marriages built around your word, and the authority that it has over our life. And so, Father, would you help us? Lord, if there's anyone in this room today that has never professed you as Lord, called upon your name to be saved, I pray that today would be the day of their salvation. And, Father, they would cry out in their seats just now, Father, save me from my sins. And you let your spirit work. So I pray and ask these things in Christ's name and God's people said,